morning, folks. Uh, thanks, Kelly, for reading that uh, rather long passage. And it would be helpful if you have access to a Bible, if you can keep it open as we uh, go through it. Well, if you've been uh, following our sermon series in John over uh, the last few weeks, you'll have noticed that as we go through chapter 6 and 7, there's been a fair deal of grumbling. Jesus' audiences have started to realize that he's really not the Messiah that they had hoped he would be. And many of his would-be disciples have turned back. They've unfriended Jesus, as we might say, today. And now there's only 12 left. So clearly then, Jesus is dividing opinion big time. But it's going to get nastier than that. Now we're into chapter 7. We find that those who are the most anti-Jesus, the Jewish leaders in Judea, well, they're looking for a way to kill him. Verse 1 of chapter 7. So we've reached a point in John's Gospel where Jesus' ministry is becoming more and more dangerous. He can no longer move freely around as he had done before. He has to pick his moments more carefully. And yet his ministry goes on. Jesus will confront danger. He will attend the Festival of Tabernacles. And we uh, heard about that last week when Jake preached to us on the uh, early half of, of chapter 7. Um, so he's going to confront danger, but he's also going to teach the people of Jerusalem some quite startling and, some would say, offensive truths about God and about themselves. And that's where we pick up the narrative at verse 25. Yet, despite the crowd's confusion about who Jesus is, despite the hatred of the authorities and their sneering towards him, Jesus still opens up the offer of life to those who are thirsty. And that offer of life is very much on the table today. So will you take it? Maybe that depends firstly on what you make of the man who's making the offer, which leads me to my first heading. Do you know a Messiah when you see one? You see, you might think you do, but actually, not everyone does know a Messiah, a saviour, when they see one right in front of them. Back in Jesus' day, waiting for the Messiah was a big deal. The Jews had come to think of their Messiah as a strong military saviour. And uh, over the 150 years or so, up to Jesus, preceding Jesus' death, uh, birth, sorry, uh, there'd been plenty of failed candidates. There'd been quite a few failed revolts against the oppressive ruling powers, the Greeks and then, more, more recently, the Romans. So I wonder then if many in the uh, crowd at the Feast of Tabernacles might have been thinking, well, you know, this is a good time for the, the next military man to show up and make a big impression, to come bursting onto the scene. And, well, Jesus isn't doing that, is he? So the action begins with the people of Jerusalem looking at Jesus and scratching their heads and thinking, have the authorities really concluded that this man is the Messiah? Hmm, we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, 
No one will know where he's from. So in this verse 27, we meet two problems, two problems, and two not dissimilar obstacles that get in the way of people accepting and following Jesus. The first problem is the problem of belonging, where Jesus is from. And the second problem is the problem of spiritual blindness. So let's tackle the first of those problems. Verse 27. We know where this man is from. In other words, while they might not know Jesus personally, but he's a public figure, and by now it's common knowledge that he's not from around these parts. He's from a long way up north. And uh, he's Jesus of Nazareth in Galilee. Now, actually, we've seen this kind of thinking before in John's Gospel. If you think back to Nathaniel in chapter 1. Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? And then at the end of our passage, in verse 52, the religious leaders sneering, well, if you look into it, you'll see that no prophet comes from Galilee. So Galilee, and particularly the uh, undistinguished town of Nazareth, is a lost cause, spiritually speaking, to those who live elsewhere in so-called better places. Coursing through John's Gospel, then, is this regional snobbery. So on the one hand, there's the Judeans, the people of Jerusalem, and the religious authorities, the chief priests, the Pharisees. Then on the other hand, there's Jesus and his ragtag band of followers and upstarts from the poor northern promise, province sorry, of Galilee, who are constantly speaking out of place, telling those more important than themselves that their idea of God is fundamentally misplaced. Well, nobody likes to be told that, do they? Not least by someone who doesn't belong from these parts from around here. And if we think that none of this has much to do with us today, well, think again. Just think back, if you will, to our local council elections in Banbury. If I remember rightly, each candidate wanted to demonstrate that they are from here. They're one of us, a man or woman fit to represent us because they've grown up here. They have appropriate experience of our locality. Just imagine someone standing for office in Banbury who's lived their whole life in Berwick-upon-Tweed. Well, the chances are they probably wouldn't get many votes, would they? People would say, well, well, we know where you're from, and it's not here. You don't belong here. All right, okay, that's local politics. How does it look in the local church? Well, some of the recent scandals in our own evangelical circles reflect a subculture where to be listened to, to have authority and influence, means that you have to have gone to the right school, then the right university, and perhaps above all, the right, have the right church background. And quite frankly, Jesus wouldn't have passed any of those tests. He didn't go to private school, didn't have a degree from Oxford University. He wasn't trained in an affluent middle-class parish in the south of England. So we as evangelicals here in the south of England need to guard subconsciously against slipping into a mindset that we think we know where Jesus is from. It belongs to a nice, 
Bible-believing church of England church just like ours. Of course, the reality is Jesus wasn't from St. Paul's Banbury. And the moment we start basing our understanding of Jesus on our church culture, the way we do things here, we risk ending up with the wrong Messiah. So that's the first problem. And then what about the second problem in verse 27? Actually, it comes back later in verses 41 to 42. Uh, And this is the bigger problem that encompasses the first. It's a problem of spiritual blindness. Now, that's not to say that the people of Jerusalem know absolutely nothing about their Bibles. On the contrary, they do. And indeed, they're quite confident in their knowledge of the Old Testament. So in in verse 42, we see that they know that the Messiah is going to be a descendant of David. He's going to come from David's city, Bethlehem. All well and good. But then look back to verse 27, and there's an element of confusion. So apparently in Jesus' day... There was a traditional belief that the Messiah, when he rocks up in town, will suddenly appear out of nowhere. Perhaps this tradition had grown up around Old Testament verses like the one in Malachi, one of the minor prophets. So Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come into his temple So you can kind of start to see the logic here in the people's minds. They're thinking, hmm, no, Jesus can't be the Messiah, the one who'll come and save us, because look, he's appeared very publicly in the temple courts before our eyes, hasn't come out of nowhere. Oh, and by the way, we know he's from Galilee, not Bethlehem. So that's two boxes he hasn't ticked. No secrecy, no Bethlehem. Oh, and no surprise storming of the temple either. No kicking out the Romans. He doesn't seem to be doing any of that. Not much sign of him restoring God's kingdom to its former glories. No Messiah. Case closed. Okay, so what's all that got to do with us? Perhaps not a lot at first sight. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, they got that one wrong big time, didn't they? But... You know, so what? I don't, maybe I don't know that much about the Old Testament and what it says about the Messiah, but come on, at least I know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We sing about it every Christmas. And I know that he died for my sins, and I trust him, and that's enough, isn't it? Well, praise God, yes, that is enough for your salvation and mine, trusting in Jesus' death. But there is here, I think, a challenge to us all not to become complacent to the point where we can't see Jesus in a fresh light. That seems to have been the problem for John's audience, Jesus' audience in John chapter 7. They'd stopped learning from Scripture, and they'd ended up with this rather superficial understanding of the Messiah from the Old Testament, and they just could not join the dots. They could not connect their head knowledge with the man they see in front of them, standing in the temple courts and teaching. And what about us? Well, our challenge then is to pray against 
this kind of spiritual blindness. Lord, when I read my Bible, please keep it fresh. Help me not to simply get stuck in a rut, rereading my favourite three passages over and over, so I become blinded to other aspects of Jesus' character. Do we really know the Messiah when we see him in Scripture, and especially in the Old Testament? So there's this challenge to us all in John 7 to look more carefully at how the whole of the Old Testament points us to a Messiah, one who might just surprise our expectations. If we do this, we'll start to see that the Messiah that's been foretold is one who won't come into our lives guns blazing in glory out of nowhere. It's a Messiah whose majesty is hard to see because he doesn't look all that great at least not on the surface. A Messiah who might even look unattractive because he says some shocking truths about how spiritually blind we are without him. And here it is in John chapter 7, Jesus rubbing people up the wrong way. So look back with me at verses 28 and 29. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own authority. But he who sent me is true. You do not know him. But I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So Jesus is not at all afraid to call out the people's rather shallow understanding of the Messiah. The most important part the part that he'd been sent by God, had completely eluded them. Has it eluded us? Jesus has been consistently claiming that he is ultimately not from Nazareth, not even from Bethlehem, but from God, the one whom God the Father has sent into the world. And we get this right from the very beginning of John's Gospel, when John, speaking of the Incarnation, back in chapter 1, says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who comes from the Father, full of grace and truth. The full truth of the matter then is that, like Jesus' first disciples, we too have to have our eyes opened by him. Verse 28 again, we simply can't grasp what sort of a Messiah Jesus is if we do not know God by faith in Jesus, who is from God. And so without this relational knowledge of God, Jesus isn't going to make any sense to us at all. We'll be reduced to baffled speculation, like the poor folks of verses 35 and 36. However, there is another outcome as shown in the second third of our passage, and it's this. Come to Jesus for life-giving water. Come to Jesus for life-giving water. That's my second heading. And we see it in verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, Rivers of living water will flow from within them. 
Now, I'm going to ask you a question a bit like Steve did earlier. Have you ever been really thirsty? No, no, more than that kind of dry feeling you get in the back of your throat when you've been on the phone to your mum for an hour. More than that, yeah. Uh, even more than, say, how you'd feel after a full-on jog up and down Bredge Hill seven times, which I haven't done, by the way, but I imagine that would make you pretty thirsty. No, I mean, I mean so thirsty that you think, I'm going to faint right now if I don't get a drink right now. Well, if I think about my own life, I've experienced that level of thirst perhaps once, just under 20 years ago when I was a, a junior leader on a scripture union camp and I'd managed to get a bunch of 12-year-olds lost in the foothills of the lower Provence in France and uh, in the heat of a July day. It was not a happy time. Well, it's that kind of urgent thirst that Jesus wants us to have for himself. Jesus isn't like your kitchen tap that tops up your kettle for your morning cup of tea. He's more like my scripture union camp leader who arrived in the nick of time with 50 bottles of Evian for thirsty campers. And of course, actually, he's so much more than that, isn't he? The life-giving water that Jesus offers us is so much more than physical water. Look again at what Jesus does and says. He stands up at the high point of the festival. Uh, just as all that, if you remember what would have been happening, there'd be a, a load of cool, refreshing water being poured out along with wine as an offering to God. What a wonderful spectacle. But Jesus says, never mind the water, look at me. I can offer you something that's unimaginably more satisfying, something that's so life-giving and so life-changing that it will fill you up so that you overflow to others. Rivers of living waters. And notice how in verse 38, Jesus expects us to have some idea of what he's on about, again from the Old Testament, as scripture has said, meaning, think back guys to your Old Testament. Well, it's a bit of a tricky one, this. I did some thinking about rivers of living water in the Old Testament, and uh, I'll have to say that no verses or passages immediately came to mind, which I think says volumes about my lack of Old Testament knowledge. So I uh, did the right thing, and I went to the likes of Jake and Steve for some help, and, and rather wonderfully, I found that the richness of this image is such that it doesn't have a nice, neat, mathematical correspondence with one particular passage in the Old Testament. Rather, there's a range of possibilities. So here are a few of them. Firstly, if we think back to Israel's history as a thirsty people, this might be familiar to some of our younger members. So I hear this week you've been looking at Numbers chapter 20, now then, young people, what did God do for his people when they were grumpy and thirsty in the desert? Anybody know the answer? That's next week. Oh, that's next week. Okay, you're going to find out next week. Well, I'll give you a heads up. Give you a heads up. He opened the rock and water gushed out, as Psalm 104, verse 11, sorry, verse 41 puts it. Okay, switching to slightly later in the Old Testament now. Nehemiah chapter 8, which reminds us how the Jewish people 
celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles in the Old Testament. So they built shelters, and they had choice food and sweet drinks. In other words, it's quite possible for God's people to be holy and to enjoy a darn good party at the same time. Uh, And if you want to see what this looks like, have a look at the Jesus Storybook Bible pictures of this passage of Nehemiah, and you'll get an idea. And then there there are passages that arguably speak more directly to us as God's believers today in the Old Testament. Well, there's Psalm 42 that we've already considered, opening with that eloquent expression of the longing that I was alluding to in my uh, rather feeble hiking anecdote. So Psalm 42 puts it, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. And this deep longing seems to be answered in Isaiah chapter 58, verse 11, promising that if you walk in the Lord's ways, if you do what is right, if you reach out to others, then the Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Well, what a delightful picture of the Lord's abundant life-giving waters that's starting really to resonate with what we have in John chapter 7. And so if we consider the broad sweep of these Old Testament passages, what we find again and again is that the Lord reaches out to his people and richly satisfies their deepest longings. God isn't a mean-spirited God, like a grumpy father, like me on a family walk, thinking, oh, all right then, Samuel, you can have a drink of water, but, but not too much. I've got to save some for your sister. No, he's not like that. Praise God, he's not. The blessings that he gives us are sweet and abundant. And best of all, those who have drunk from the wellspring of God's grace become like springs themselves. And their generosity overflows to others in their time of need. So that's the ideal. But maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, to be honest, I've not really experienced anything like this ever. Um, Life's pretty tough at the moment. And although I long for this sort of blessing from God, I just don't see it. Well, friends, if that's how we're feeling, then let's put ourselves once again in the picture of John chapter 7. Imagine you're one of those hard-pressed people in the temple courts, and then Jesus stands and says in that authoritative tone of voice that only he has, the voice that drives out doubt and fear, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Well, as I said earlier, the offer still stands today. Come to Jesus And you'll find that what he offers is more deeply satisfying than anything you currently lack. And what is it that he's offering you right now? Well, it's the promise of the Holy Spirit, verse 39. If you're trusting in Jesus, Jesus has come to you and he lives in you by his Holy Spirit. It's a mind-blowing idea. And Jesus' first hearers didn't grasp it because... Well, we read Jesus has not yet been glorified 
He had not yet died on the cross. And uh, Jesus' own disciples, even though they uh, witnessed the cross and his resurrection, well, arguably they didn't really get it until the wonderful outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. But living as we do after the cross, after the resurrection, after Pentecost, we can have every assurance that we need not wait around for the Holy Spirit to come to us. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, when we put our trust in Jesus, we receive the Spirit, and the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are indeed God's children. We're part of God's family right now. We stand to inherit every spiritual blessing. Well, there's, there's so much more that we could say about these wonderful Trinitarian truths, but time is running out. So let me end by asking you again that question. Have you taken up Jesus' offer of life-giving water, his offer of his Holy Spirit? If you've never put your trust in Jesus and are still not quite sure what all this means... Maybe you can start to see a bit like the guards in verse 46 that no one else has ever spoken with the authority and power that this man does. So, so why not find out more? Be like Nicodemus in verse 50. Have an inquiring mind. Find out more about what Jesus says and what he's been doing. And if you've been trusting in Jesus for some time, maybe even many years, are you still coming to him? day by day, asking him with urgency to satisfy your deepest longings and needs. Will you do that today? Will you say to him, Lord Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would I experience that deep, refreshing joy in my life that only comes from a knowledge of you, from knowing you? Well, we live in very uncertain times, in the hope that we might be getting on top of the coronavirus and in the fear that it's always still one step ahead of us. We thirst after certainty. And Jesus says, come to me and drink. Perhaps we long to reach out more to friends and to family, to neighbours. And yet so often the blessings that come from us are but the drips of a leaky kitchen tap. Jesus says, Come to me, and by the power of my spirit, you will abundantly bless others. So whatever challenges you and I face this coming week, let's keep coming back to Jesus. Let's keep coming back to him so that he might equip us to face those difficulties, whatever it might be. So that he might empower us to walk through our uncertain times with deep peace joy and assurance. We may not yet fully understand what transformation his spirit will eventually work in our lives, but we know that it promises to be glorious. Amen.